0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. Back to the Bible Canada. In our current series, The Story of the Bible, we continue to unpack the overarching narrative of God's Word. Today, Dr. Newfeld walks us through an overview of Exodus to Deuteronomy as we study the giving of the law. So let's begin now as we go Back to the Bible.
1: As the story of the Bible begins to take shape, one thing becomes abundantly plain. What the human race needs more than any other thing is salvation. We need to be saved from the madness of believing that we can rule this world without God. We need to be saved from the folly of believing that we can find purpose for our lives other than the purposes that God specifically created us for. We need to be saved from the curse that God has placed upon us as a result of our rebellion. We need to be saved from the evil one who seeks our undoing. We need to be saved from the temporal and eternal consequences of our sin. More than anything, we need God to be reconciled to us. We've been tracing the Bible storyline. In the beginning, we saw how a glorious God created all things and then mankind in His image. To man is given the task to rule and reign over all God's works as His representatives. But we rebelled and incurred God's displeasure and his curse. But God is gracious. In the fullness of time, he raised up Abraham and promises this man that through him, he will not only establish an offspring who will inherit the intention that God has for the human race, but through Abraham, not just his offspring, but the entire human race will find a blessing. We turn now to the next page in the story. The descendants of Abraham have become an extended family of 72. But instead of inheriting the land that God promised, the plot line of the Bible takes an unexpected twist. Abraham's descendants become refugees fleeing a famine in the promised land and living in Egypt. As we come to the book of Exodus, a considerable amount of time has passed. When Bible teachers date some of the events recorded in the Bible, they, they do look at archaeological finds, but they also look at the Bible's internal dating systems. And so 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 contains an important line. It says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. We know from the Egyptian dating systems and the relief walls in ancient Egyptian temples, there is an exact date given for the year of Solomon's ascension to the throne. And so since the fourth year of Solomon is exactly 480 years since Israel left Egypt, we can do the math and accurately set the date of the Exodus at exactly 1446 B.C. Now that's important because this kind of background allows us to understand the historical context of the events recorded. If the descendants of Abraham first arrived in Egypt in 1875 B.C., then the time they lived there covers a period of 430 years, meaning, of course, that it was over 400 years from the end of the book of Genesis to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Now, much had occurred. The family of Abraham is now a nation. Exodus 30 verse 12 says that the first census that was taken listed the men from 20 years old and older, and that number came to 603,550. And so it's generally believed that the family of Abraham now consisted of a nation somewhere around 2 million people. And so we can see that the godly line of Abraham had become an exceedingly large group of people. Exodus begins by saying there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. From what we know of the history of Egypt, it seems quite likely that the new king was most likely not an Egyptian at all, but was part of an invasion into Egypt of a people group known as the Hyksos, who made a policy of enslaving Israel. After the Hyksos were repulsed, the practice of slavery simply continued under Egyptian rule. And that's where our story begins. God has promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, that they would inherit Canaan, and that they would receive the blessing of God, and through them, a blessing from God would come to the whole earth. God now sets to accomplish this in the storyline of the Bible from Exodus through to Deuteronomy. There are, in fact, five important movements or five important events that must not be missed. The first movement in the story is the story of the Exodus. God has raised up Moses to approach Pharaoh with the news that he must allow the Israelites to go into the desert to sacrifice and worship their God. This is tantamount to saying that the God of Israel takes precedence over the desires of Egypt. In response to Pharaoh's strong refusal, there are several keys to understanding the story. Pharaoh will discover that his gods, that is the sun god or the gods of the Nile and so forth, Well, they're all frauds. The God of Israel is the great creator, and he can do all that he pleases. Eventually, Pharaoh's Egypt stands in utter ruin, and the God of Israel has killed all the firstborn in his land. Even the vain attempt in the end of the day to reconsider and force Israel back ends with Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. In response, Moses taught all Israel to sing the song recorded in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then later, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So here's an expression of confidence, that the God who created all things, when he wills something, has the strength to accomplish it. Egypt was the superpower of that part of the world, and the great God humiliated him and reduced him to nothing by the mere act of his decrees. You know, the next movement in the story is the journey from Egypt into the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel will spend two years in front of that mountain, and God himself will teach them how to worship him and how they are to live. In essence, we have here the repetition of the story the Bible began with. God created the earth for his glory and then created man as image-bearers of God to rule and reign on his behalf. But Israel is unprepared to rule and reign. Indeed, the story of the Exodus proved that they were as sinful as Egypt, and so God calls a nation of two million to spend two years with Him as they learned what it is to become the people of God. At first, it must be said that Israel survived because of miracles. The Sinai Desert is hot and inhospitable, and food is in an extremely rare supply. The story of manna explains how they survived. God actually supernaturally fed them every morning. The first great event at Mount Sinai is the giving of the Ten Commandments. In essence, we have now in the Bible the third of God's covenants. The first was the covenant with Noah, that God would find a way never to allow the conditions in the earth to so deteriorate that it would necessitate a flood. The second covenant that God makes is with Abraham, that he will raise up a promised nation, give them a land, and through them to bless the whole earth. Now the third covenant. God gives the law, or the Ten Commandments, and by that defines the kind of people that His chosen people must be. The first four commands, to worship no other gods, to make no graven images, to never misuse the sacred name, and to keep the Sabbath, are laws that will teach the nation how they are to love God. The last six, to honor father and mother, to not murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness, and to refrain from coveting teach Israel how to love their neighbor. Now, from that basic foundation come laws relating to every aspect of the national life of Israel. Israel must learn to fear God and to be a people holy to the Lord God so that they can fulfill their purpose, the purpose given to the human race at creation. But Israel not only learns the law at Sinai, they also learn to worship there. The last part of Exodus gives detailed instructions regarding the building of a tabernacle, its dimensions, its furniture, and the priests who may serve, including the clothing the priests are to wear. And then the book of Leviticus, which follows, defines the systems of offerings and sacrifices to be offered at the tabernacle. It then defines clean and unclean animals and then goes on to describe the seven appointed festivals that are to be celebrated every year in the national life of Israel. There are a number of other details that are there. In fact, the book of Exodus seems very complex to the modern-day reader, but it is a very important book in the defining of the Bible story. You see, for the modern reader, this part of the Bible can seem extremely difficult and we might feel tempted to forget the storyline and get caught up in the details. But we do well to remember that this part of the story is essential. Until we find out what God wants of His chosen people, we will never get a proper sense of what eventually went wrong and why the storyline of the Bible takes another surprising and unexpected twist in the plot line.
0: Your prayers and financial contributions are critical to our ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is funded solely by donations from people like you, our listeners. A critical group that sustains our Bible teaching program is our monthly partners. These friends of the ministry provide a stable foundation of support. So we thank them and present you the opportunity to join them today. Our monthly partner program called the 1119 Fellowship helps ensure that trustworthy teaching is available throughout Canada in creative ways so that the gospel is easily found and heard by anyone seeking it. By belonging to the 1119 Fellowship, you become part of a nationwide community committed to sharing trustworthy Bible teaching, ensuring that truth, wisdom, joy, and hope can be found for anyone searching for God. To learn more about the program and the unique benefits of becoming a member, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship.
1: I've said that Exodus to Deuteronomy presents us with five movements or five major scenes in telling us its storyline. The first scene is that of the Exodus, including the 10 plagues on Egypt, the Passover, and the Red Sea Crossing. The second scene consists of the two years camped out in front of Mount Sinai, which include the Ten Commandments, the building of the tabernacle, and the establishment of the ritual of worship. Scene 3 now takes us to the plains of Kadesh Barnea, recorded in Numbers 13-14. to After the two years before the mountain, Numbers 10 verse 11 says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. They are now on the way to the promised land. They have the ancient promise of Abraham that they would become a great nation and settle into a land and become a blessing to the whole earth. Theirs is a sacred destiny, for in them is the hope that God will break the curse of the serpent and through them restore the earth. But not all is well. Complaints about their misfortunes and complaints about their leader Moses are heard along the way. But eventually they arrive on the southern end of the promised land. In spite of their troubles, they've arrived. God gives them an order, and they choose 12 men to spy out the land. And after 40 days, they return and present some of the fruit of the land and affirm that all that God has said about the land is true. It does flow with milk and honey. But this is where the good news ends. Ten of the 12 spies make much about the fortified cities in the land, and they tell how fierce the inhabitants are. And here, once again, we find one of the great turning points of the Bible— When the serpent told Eve that she should not trust God, Eve responded that she agreed. God had given a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but perhaps God was lying to her. Perhaps no death would result. Perhaps God is deceiving her. And here again, at Kadesh Barnea, human beings are faced with a choice. God had told them to go into the land. He had promised it to them through Abraham over 500 years earlier, and now was their moment. Besides, God had already humbled the Egyptians, who were a great deal more powerful than the inhabitants of the promised land. This, if they had believed God, would have been their finest hour. Numbers 14 verse 3 records the majority of Israel asking one question that must have reverberated throughout their camp. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? The assumption behind that question is that old assumption, as old as the human race. Why is God not telling us the truth? Why is God so intent on deceiving us? Why is it that we can't trust the promises of God? And so God speaks, Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? You know, at this point, God closes the door to a generation. He announces that the people who despised him would not enter the promised land, but he opens the door to their children, the next generation. The promise made to Abraham will be fulfilled, but it will not be realized by a generation that refuses to trust him. Now, in response, a most remarkable thing happens. But first, 10 of the 12 spies who brought the bad report are killed by God. That almost inexplicably, a group of the people of Israel decide to invade the promised land on their own without the help of the Lord and are quickly defeated and killed by the Canaanites. In essence, in this account, the entire sorry history of the human race is being replayed. Human beings refuse to believe God, and human beings insist on working out their own destiny in stubborn rebellion to God. And that never works well. Haven't you found it so? Whenever we try to fulfill our life's purpose without God, disappointment, failure, and ultimately death are sure to follow. We move now to the fourth great movement in the story of the Exodus to Deuteronomy. This next era is the era of 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. The entire generation of the people of Israel now encamps from one location to the next for the next 38 years. Numbers 33 records each one of these camps, over 30 of them. Safe to say, they had no permanent home. And the mood among the people, well, it was foul. The Bible records their constant rebellion and the punitive hand of God as he would not permit them to rebel against his purposes. Now, during this time, more laws are added and specific boundaries of the promised land are being described. Again, the reader who reads through numbers might again forget the storyline, but here it's quite possible to see why. In the eyes of the people, the storyline is all but forgotten. This became the longest funeral march in history, as year after year, another portion of that generation died and was buried. Not until that whole generation died and their children are in place of leadership do they again come to the borders of the Promised Land. But this time, they are not on the southern end of the land, they are on the eastern end of the land, just to the east of the Jordan River overlooking the plains of Moab. And with this comes the final scene in this long journey to the Promised Land. The book of Deuteronomy can seem confusing to the reader. On the one hand, it seems like a retelling of the entire law. The Ten Commandments are again reviewed, along with laws related to feasts and a number of other practical matters already discussed. But if that's all we see in this remarkable book, we are well served to read it again. You see, the book of Deuteronomy, from front to back, is a sermon. Moses is now an old man and about to die. God allows him to climb up one side of Mount Nebo, and from there he can look over to the Promised Land and see it from a distance. But before he does, Moses delivers a prophetic farewell address to the next generation, the one that did not rebel at Kadesh Barnea. You know, in many ways, Deuteronomy almost reads like an evangelistic appeal. It consists of a review of the history of Israel, along with the great deeds of God and and the victories that they have had over their enemies. But in all this recounting of what God has done, Moses has a point. It's addressed to the people who will enter the land after his death. Listen to a part of that sermon. I'm reading from Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. You know, and as Deuteronomy comes to an end, Moses makes an urgent appeal. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 18, records a part of that sermon. Let me read it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. You know, and as the book of Deuteronomy comes to an end, and as Moses dies, we're left wondering what is to occur next. Will the next generation fare better than the last one? And if they do not, What is to happen to the plot line of the Bible? Will a chosen human race inherit the great calling of the human race to rule and reign over all the works of God on his behalf? Will that transpire? Indeed, is the story of the purpose in creation ever to be fulfilled? You know, it's clear that Moses is aware at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that eventually the people will fall away from God. That's why you have this recounting of all the curses that will come upon them. But the book of Deuteronomy also carries with it a hope that will be felt through the rest of the Bible story. The hope is that God will do for his people something that his people are incapable of doing for themselves. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and so that you may live. And indeed, as the story progresses, we'll be introduced to prophets who will tell that such a day will indeed occur in the future. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament carries with it this hope that one day, the Messiah, the promised King, not only the King of Israel, but the King of the whole world, will come. And he will lead the whole world towards righteousness. This is the hope of the biblical account, and this should be our hope as well. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that God's people who are re-listening to the story that you have told in the Bible will take hope that when things are not as they should be, that your promises can never fail. Thank you for the word of God that gives us that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: John, you brought us quite a distance in the storyline of the Bible, but you really opened up a bit of a can of worms for some people, so I just got to ask you the question, are we still bound by the Old Testament law today?
1: You know, that is the question, and uh, in a few seconds, let me just say this. Uh, Number one, if you're thinking about committing adultery, you need to hear the law of God. Thou shalt not. So in that sense, you are bound. But if, on the other hand, you want to know whether or not you have to keep Jewish dietary restrictions, well, you don't have to keep them at all because they were meant for Israel only. But ultimately, we can say that keeping of the law does not bring us into relationship with God. It only points out that which is wrong. So we can say that only grace brings us into relationship with God, and there are some elements of the law we don't have to do. Read your New Testament. It'll tell you which laws to keep and which ones not to.
0: (laughs) Thanks, John. We look forward to more with you tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.